<laughs> Welcome to Kesson Church. How's everybody? Good, good. If you are new, my name is Danny, and I am one of the pastors here. I'm going to share with you a little bit today. We're in a series right now called Jesus Don't Care, and uh, our opening kind of intro video there is highlighting the fact that Jesus, for instance, doesn't care about bass, uh, whether it's... <laughs> Whether it's too loud or too quiet, it's not, it's not a biblical thing. Some of you probably want to make it a biblical thing, like, uh, like, like so many things that we have in our Christian culture. But uh, the truth is, there, there's, there's just a lot of stuff that we, that we hold on to that Jesus just doesn't care about. And so uh, we've been kind of unpacking that for the last few weeks, and today we're going to do the same thing. Uh, we're going to look at, here in just a minute, what would happen... If we as a community, not just individuals, actually kind of embrace this whole idea that Jesus doesn't care about some stuff, we're going to use a, a well-known passage that I'm going to kind of tear apart for you in just a second. But the important thing to do is allow yourself to be part of the drama that unfolds in the pages. This is what's so important about studying the Bible is we don't just look at the book and then, and then be like, oh, okay, those people think that way or, or that's how that happened for them. All of this stuff is supposed to be alive and apply to us. And so as we unfold this text, try to figure out where you are in the story. Now, the important thing to recognize is that if we're going to dive into, as a community, what it means not to care about some stuff, we need to define community a little bit differently than maybe we're used to. Community can look like many things. And that's an important thing to realize because I think a lot of people think community are uh, maybe the people you work with or the family you're born into, and those are aspects of community, but they're not the only uh, part of the community. Community involves people you never talk to. Community involves people who are affected by things that you're a part of that you never see. And we need to recognize that as a church, we play a really important role in our community, even if our community isn't attending or watching online with us. And that's kind of what we're going to see here in this story. Now, I like the idea of... Uh, of Scripture and text kind of being unfolded like a drama. So uh, for fun today, and I think for a little bit of creative exercise, we're going to actually unfold it like a drama here on the stage. And we're going to start off with what we imagine to be center stage, which would be Christ. Christ would be center stage. He'd stand somewhere in this area right here, and everything else, according to the Bible, would revolve around him. The Christ is what all else aligns around in order to experience healing and wholeness. This is why our message that we put out is so importantly Jesus, not Danny, not church, not, not creativity, not leadership, not, not effectiveness. It's always supposed to be Jesus because he is always at the center of the stage. Now, Jesus had kind of a center stage even with his time physically on earth. We know he was born in Bethlehem. We know that's true. When he was very young, his parents then moved him to Nazareth in the area of Galilee. And then when Jesus grew up, he moved to Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee. From this sort of center that he stayed, Jesus traveled all over Galilee teaching the message of truth that he represented. Matthew 4.23 says this, And he went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. He went from Capernaum and went out and met needs. That's what he did. He went out and he affected people and he stirred people and he frustrated people and he challenged people and he convicted people. Jesus is actually kind of messy during his time here on earth. And I think it's a really important thing to realize for those of us that want to put Jesus at center stage of our life. 
it's messy sometimes because he still does that stuff in our lives. You would think that you'd like hook up with Jesus and then everything would be fine, but it's not. He's always like challenge, challenge, conviction, conviction. Oh, oh, you need to work on that. Oh, let me encourage you. No, I'm not good at that. No, stop, shut your mouth, listen to me, do this. And all of a sudden you're in this sort of messy relational dance with Jesus and he is of course center stage in all of that or he's supposed to be. Some of us in the room, that might be actually some of the central problems that you're figuring out right now in your world is you're actually center stage. You actually stand at the center of all things. And it's your decisions and, and your understandings and your view of the world that determines how things ought to be. And therefore, your reality is the most important reality because your life is built upon you primarily. Maybe. Don't get offended. I don't, you don't know if I'm talking directly to you, but I am talking directly to you, whoever you. <laughs> Despite all this travel, it appears Jesus continued to come home to that center stage of his physical ministry in Capernaum. Meaning, he probably made it a sort of ministry base because as the verse you're about to see that begins to unfold the story we're about to uh, dive into says, Jesus actually had a home. Mark 2, verse 1 is where we're going to be. If you have a Bible, verses will be on the screen. It says, When Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard, look at the phrase, that he had come home. Interesting. Like, he had a place, but he says, I don't have a place. He says in many different passages, like, I'm without a place. And yet this verse says he came home, and it says people knew that he was there inside their city because they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he then responded to their gathering by sharing the word with him, by sharing the truth of who he was and what he was about. Because of his reputation as one who could heal the sick and cast out demons because of his travels and all the things that he had accomplished, naturally as news spread that Jesus was back in town, a huge crowd gathered until people packed the house where he was staying. The idea that people knew exactly where Jesus was and which house he was at speaks to the reality that he probably didn't just have a home that he maintained, but he most likely had a host home or a host family. A, a family that said, we'll take care of the needs of Jesus when he's back home in town. And so for our drama that we're unfolding, let's just imagine that. We have Jesus center stage, and then stage right, we have a host family. Some people who've decided that they're going to partake in the ministry of Jesus differently than the disciples that travel around with him. These would be the hosts. The hosts are the people who have resources to spare, which they are willing to risk for the cause of Christ. Now, Immediately, people with resources in the room were like, uh-oh, here he goes. He's going to start talking about resources again. Hey, this is time. This isn't just money. This is talent. This is serving. This is also, of course, resources, and that would be money. That's who these people are. They're representing this caretaking of Jesus and his ministry. And let me be very clear. All of us, at some level, are called to host. All of us at some level, are called to partake in the physical aspect of ministry, whether that's serving or helping or praying or giving or connecting or sitting with another person. I love that people are growing. I love that Sunday mornings are filling up. I love that online is just exploding. I think it's all wonderful. I, I think it's all Holy Spirit driven. I believe all that. But what's most important right now about this next season of Kesed are people who are willing to move from that place of entering the house and hoping to spend some time with Jesus to actually hosting the house that Jesus spends time in so that other people can come and fill that house as well and spend time with Jesus. 
We can't all just show up outside the windows and watch. We'd like to. It's way more fun and way less expensive. But it's an important thing to recognize that hosts are important. One other quick note about this gathering. So much of Jesus' ministry happens because of how he finds his way toward people. We preach this all the time. How he finds his way towards lost people. For instance, in Luke 15, verse 3 through 7, Jesus gives this illustration that we've, that we've preached over and over and over. He says this, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need repentance. This is a classic illustration of how we see Christ. And so a classic illustration of how, what we think Jesus cares about, which is, of course, the lost, the the one. But if we were to put this into a sentence, it would be this. Jesus is great at finding the lost. We know that. But this doesn't mean you just get to drive your life into a ditch and then start bleeding out into the darkness for super Jesus to swoop in and save you. Some of us, we're actually not seeking Jesus. We're seeking the 1%. We're seeking to be the one. We think, well, eventually he's going to find me because look how messed up my world is. And that could be true, and it's often preached. It's an important thing to understand. But we also need to recognize, according to this passage, Jesus is also great at sitting still long enough for the lost to discover he's always been just around the corner. Sometimes he's just at home. And sometimes all you and I have to do is decide that we're going to go stand outside the window. So some of you in the room You are hearing this for the first time. You are spiritually curious. You don't even know why you're here, and this entire thing makes you, frankly, anxious. And that's okay, by the way. Super courageous that you even took a chance to walk in the room or listen. It's a really big deal. It's a really, really big deal. So create space for that. And I believe that if you are so lost that you cannot find your way to where Jesus is, then, of course, I believe he will come find you. But some of you, you know where Jesus is. But you just don't want to pay the cost to get there. And so you sit in your ditch, and you bleat out into the darkness, and you wait for Jesus and his cape to come and save you, and it's not going to work that way. You're going to have to make decisions. You're going to have to decide, is this your church home? Is this your God? Are you just going to be spiritually curious forever? I love spiritual curiosity. I talk to so many people with so many different faith, you know, worldviews. It's amazing. But at the end of the day, I still believe this is the message that brings the most life, the most wholeness, and the most healing. So I just want to encourage those of you in the room waiting for Super Jesus. He's at a coffee shop just around the corner with your favorite drink waiting for you to get up. It reminds me, you know how you ever seen like when your toddler's afraid of the water and she's only up to her knees? Jesus is like, just, just stand up. Walk over to me. So I don't know who that was because you distracted where I'm going in my sermon, but that's for you. And I hope you take it home. And use it because you just cost me three minutes. <laughs> now, our drama is continuing to unfold. We have Jesus center stage. We have the host, okay, uh, stage right. Somewhere across town, there's a meeting happening. And people are be- inside this meeting. There's at least five people in this meeting, but I'm guessing more. And these people are circled up 
and are passionately discussing what it is they're about to do. Statements like, we couldn't get to him last time he was home. Why do you think we're going to be able to do it now? We're being said. Someone says, we still have to try. Someone else says, I don't know, man. There's a lot of people there. I walked by. And then someone else looks at a body laying off in the corner and says, but he's worth it. So let's do the best we can. Off in the corner lay someone deeply loved. He's an unnamed, paralyzed man who probably doesn't even know how rich in relationship he is. But he is about to find out. Because what he does know is that his closest friends have gathered around to discuss how it is they are going to love him today. These friends are an important part of the drama. These friends uh, are the people who allow love to lead them into action. That's who these people are. They're the people who love someone and decide, because I love that person, I'm actually going to do something about it. I'm not just going to blow them a kiss emotionally, or even worse, my own opinion, blowing people's spiritual kisses. I'll pray for you. Gross. Like, just be honest right now. How many people do you say, I'll pray for you, and then you actually go and pray for them consistently? More than just a quick prayer to make sure you're not lying. I'll pray for you. Lord, please help them. Okay, we're good. Just saying. It happens. These figures are going to dive into this man's life, and they are going to be true friends and lovers of him. Eventually, they explain their plan to the paralyzed man, and wide-eyed, he must now decide. Does he give them his blessing and participate, or does he stay as he is? Because there is a great deal of risk here. He probably hasn't left his home in years. In this culture, to be sick is to be sinful. We do a bit of this still today. We say if you're scared, you don't have enough faith, you're sinful. If you're struggling, you don't have enough faith and therefore you're sinful. We've even said to people, if you're physically ill, it's because you don't have enough faith and you're sinful. If you have trouble, it's because you don't have enough faith and you're sinful. I just want to say that's all garbage theology and you should just throw it away. It's not true. It's not even how it works at all. What is true is that our culture, just like theirs, enjoys judging those with trouble different than our own. And he knows it. He knows when he gets dragged out of his house on that mat that he's laying on with his friends surrounding him that people are going to think there's the most sinful man in town. There's the man cursed by God. There's the man struggling to breathe. There's the man that God has laid his vengeance upon. And he knows that they're going to judge him as he gets dragged towards Jesus. This man who represents great purity, great holiness, great hope for the people. What kind of collision is that? He has to decide, just like we still have to decide. We're in a process right now of investigating starting a divorce recovery, divorce care ministry here at Kesed, and it will sit alongside our recovery ministry, we believe. And I just want to say that uh, when I met with the gentlemen that, that are hoping to start this, uh, one of the things that was really profound about it is they said, you know, divorced people understand divorced people. And then I believe one of the gentlemen said, when I was married, I used to judge divorced people as people who failed or as, as people who were maybe a little bit less than in their spiritual walk because they, they, they couldn't make it work. And now that I've been through my own divorce, I realize that I understand that, that damage. I understand that story. 
And there used to be a space for those people. It's the same in recovery with addicts. It's the same with anything that's a different problem than our own. But boy, if I put you in a room with somebody who has a similar problem than you, you're like, oh, empathy, empathy, empathy. But I put you in a room with something that you don't struggle with at all that's destroying someone else's life, if you're not careful, there's an edge that can show up in your voice and your eyes that says, I don't know why you can't figure this out. And the church isn't supposed to have that edge. And here at Kesed, we're going to do the best we can to weed it out. And I think it's going to happen through the repentance of people who are willing to say, God, where do you want me to serve? Where do you want me to host? Who do you want me to be a friend to? There's a lot of work that needs to be done in the hearts of Christians, let alone communities. This man decides he's going to do it. He knows this. He doesn't want to stay how he is. He doesn't want to stay in his place. And so with shaky confidence, he decides to bless what it is that's about to happen. And I guarantee you, tears all around at this point. As they look at each other and look at him, and they're like, we're going to go see Jesus today. It's beautiful. This man, the one I'm talking about, he's the man at, he's the figure at front of stage where I'm at right now, where this podium's going to sit. He is the human condition. The human condition can only be truly faced when we are first both honest and then humbled about the place we currently are. That's where the human condition exists. It exists right here, and it can only be truly embraced and truly faced when we are authentic and humble about all that we really are, all that paralyzes us, all that drags us down, all that keeps us uh, inward and, and excluded and hidden from the world and all its dangers. That is what this man represents. He represents every single person in this room. And so this is our stage. Jesus is at the center. We have the hosts off to the right, making the way happen. We have the friends making plans full of love and leadership. And we have the human condition sitting in the middle, doing nothing but just observing, being authentic about who he really is. And so finally, let's watch what happens next as our drama unfolds. They took the man, and they began to move towards where Jesus was. Mark 2, 3. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by the four of them. Now, these are the friends. The friends that could not get him to Jesus, just as they predicted. They clearly saw the obstacles, but through love and leadership, decided they would find a way anyhow. They didn't say, ah, did the best I could. We, we went to our friend, and we brought him to Jesus, but there was, just a, there was just a big crowd. They knew there'd be a big crowd. They knew there'd be problems. They knew all this. So you know what they did? They brought tools. That's what they did. They brought shovels and maybe picks. They brought whatever was at that time that would be helpful to them in the environment they were facing. Quick note for all the friends in the room who are trying to drag their non-believing or their hurting or their emotionally or spiritually paralyzed friends to Jesus. When you hit obstacles, so what? Like when you're like, oh, they're frustrated or oh, they got mad at me or oh, they didn't come to Thanksgiving or oh, they like, I don't want to be a part of your religion and whatever. Great. Throw all that stuff out. Just pull out your tools of love and leadership and just keep pummeling away. Stay present with them. Stay connected to them. Stay inside their story, which means, by the way, you're going to have to just shut your mouth and stop disagreeing with every single second of their lifestyle that doesn't fit you. This is back to the original system I told you about. If you want to be in people's stories, stop judging the stuff they struggle with that's different than yours. 
Just bring your tools. Let your friends sit on the mat. See the obstacles and push through. Mark 2, 4, since they could not get into Jesus because of the crowd, listen to this story. They made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was laying on. This just didn't happen fast. This was like, we looked, let's clear the way. Now, houses during this time were generally flat and made of straw and clay. And people would go up there when it was too hot during the evening or during the morning. That's where they would end up going. And so there was usually some sort of ladder on the side. So they wouldn't have had to do a lot of that. But they absolutely would have had to clear their way to the ladder, get up on the roof, and then get past whoever was hosting the event. Because I guarantee you, the host over here is finding some people climbing up on his roof, and he's like, what's, what's going on? I mean, the, I love Jesus has filled the house, but what, what? Did you bring a shovel? And all of a sudden, first hit. You don't think the crowd went silent? I just want to know what Jesus did during this time, because I think Jesus is so just rad at what he does that I think he already built up the story inside and it was some sort of sermon like listen when you follow me and when you're part of my life sometimes you got to really dig in because <laughs> that would have been an epic like sermon illustration and sometimes when you dig in the earth begins to crumble people are like ah <laughs> Jesus steps back and when the earth begins to crumble the light follows are you seeing we don't know this, but Jesus is good at what he does. By the way, making a man-sized hole would take a minute. I think some people are like, they just moved some straw. No, these boys dug and dug and dug. And I've wanted to know the entire time what is going on in the host's mind. Or the spouse of the host. Like, I told you, eventually this would happen. <laughs> right, I imagine that the, that the <laughs> I imagine that the husband's like, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. Jesus is a miracle worker. He'll just, it'll be fine. Um, or we'll have a skylight. It'll be, whatever it is. It's all for Jesus. It's all for Jesus. And you got his wife. Or maybe it's the husband who's the frustrated one, right? And he's like, this is going to take me so very long to rebuild all this. And he's just going through all the stuff. But these guys are digging, and they're dropping this man down before Jesus. Let me just say about the hosts in the room, because some of us are more host-minded. The host could do nothing to manage the coming miracle. When you are called to host, whether it's a season of life or you're just really good at generating resources, you need to give those resources to God and then stop managing the miracle. Stop trying to decide how it should be spent and where it should go and what's the best use because eventually someone might come and use the resources you've given and just rip your whole roof off. And that might be the most important thing that's happened in the entire town, just like it is here. These hosts put themselves in a position to help, so today their willingness to risk and sacrifice resources was about to be tested. After the light clears, the dust settles, all of a sudden they look up and there's this man on a mat being lowered down. I really want you to have a picture of this. This is another great picture of what it means to be a friend of someone on their journey towards Jesus, because as you're lowering your friend down through the hole, I don't know if people realize the people that the friend, the people uh, lowering the friend would have only been able to see the man being lowered on the mat. And the man being lowered on the mat wouldn't have been able to see Jesus to the very last minute. Most of the way down, he's looking up at the faces of his friends. So sometimes we have a really big job at work and 
in our families, and it's to look down at the people we're lowering before Jesus and to look in their eyes and maybe let those tears flow because the excitement that would have been happening between these four men and that man on the mat, epic synergy. I mean, you're talking laughing, giggling. You're talking fear. You always got that one friend who's like, we shouldn't be doing this. We shouldn't be doing this. We shouldn't be doing this. Always, always there's one in the group. It's like, shut up, Mike, right? It's just like, it's just, we always won. And you get him onto the floor and he's looking. And then suddenly the human condition is being lowered before everybody in the place filled with frailty, authentic and honest. It's just a beautiful, beautiful story. And my favorite part of it is that eventually... Eventually, the faces of the friends gets replaced inside the purview, the view of the man with the face of Jesus as he looks over and blocks the hole in the ceiling that the hosts are still looking at as Jesus looks at the man. It says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. It's a really interesting line that Jesus starts with, and I think it's because he recognizes the real purpose of the man coming, and that is to find wholeness within his person. It's not about the physical healing. It's about the need he has to be valuable, to be loved, to know that he's not sin laying on a mat in a room alone. And Jesus forgives him. Jesus loves him. Jesus receives him into that community emotionally and spiritually. But the world can't stand that. The world can't stand when we step outside the guidelines, when we do what's wrong, especially even the church world. The church world has all kinds of systems, all kinds of stuff that says this is how you should behave, this is how you're supposed to work. And when you all of a sudden are like, do I have to? I don't think I will. The world comes calling. Verse 6, now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves. I didn't say it out loud. Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And so may I just say, for those of you who are emotionally, spiritually on this stage right now, don't sweat the spectators. Don't sweat the spectators. Even the spiritual and churchy ones. Especially the spiritual and churchy ones. For the world will never understand, so stop performing for them. Back to center stage with Christ. Immediately... Jesus knew in his heart that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, immediately, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and take your mat and walk? I think there's a whole long silence. Jesus says, you know what? I'm having a long day. I came here to rest. I decided to pray with these people that showed up. These men brought a miracle right into the center of the host home's house. We'll talk later about how we're going to take care of that. And then he says, but because of your questioning of me, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. So he then turns and said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And everybody in the house went. <laughs> now, if I was that man on the mat, and I felt the love of God emotionally at the beginning, I felt that, that drive to connect with him, and then he said to go home, the first thing I would have do is make sure that it actually worked. I would have wiggled something nobody can see, like a toe under the blanket, like, oh yeah, this is happening. And then I would have been hyper dramatic about it, with my friends, by the way, that were up in the ceiling with the best view. He just said, go home. He just said, go home. And I would have been like, <laughs> something just trip everybody out. I don't know. Like, 
my friends would have tripped out up on their like, oh, ah! like everybody in the house would have been tripping out. I would have got up, mm, mm, mm. I'd have walked over to the Pharisee people. I'd have been like, look at this, look at this. I would have been tripping out, but we never read it that way. We're like, he picked up the mat and he went home. So he got up and took his mat and walked out in full view of them all like, thank you for the cheese sandwich, Jesus. So it's the most lame interpretation or view of the story ever. It says, this amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, listen to the phrase, we have never seen anything like this. And scene. Curtain closes. Illustration over. Standing ovation on wonder everywhere. As Jesus sits in the house, I think right in the spot where the man used to lay, and everybody watches the miracle walk out, and he knows that this sermon today would be told with you in the room right now. As it has been for thousands of years. This is how our God works. This is what can happen when a community of people who don't even know each other, the host people don't know the friends, the paralyzed man doesn't know Jesus, Jesus doesn't know the friends. It's all just a community deciding to care about the things that Jesus cares about and not care about the other stuff, not care about the cultural embarrassment, not care about the rules that say you can't put a hole in someone's house that you don't know. <laughs> These people decided to risk everything in order to be part of a life-changing drama. So the question becomes, why doesn't it happen more? And I think the answer is really, really simple but also fairly humbling. I think it's because of the cost. I think it costs a lot to live in a community like this. It costs those called to be hosts, resources, and risk. And frankly, few people can handle not being able to manage the miracles, especially as their roofs are getting ripped off in the name of the Lord. It costs. It costs those called to be friends, love, and leadership. Few people are willing to encourage, let alone plan, for the friends they know that need to get into the room with Jesus. Then, of course, it costs each of us, personally, every time we face down our own human condition, because it's really, really hard to be honest and humble. It's really rare to have people who actually see themselves. It's not very rare to have people who see the world a certain way, but boy, is it, is it rare to, to, to sit with someone who actually sees themselves and who they are and what they have accomplished or what they are needing. Stories of people aligning with God around the things he doesn't care about are exceedingly rare because the cost to experience them is so high that hardly anyone wants to pay it. And yet, always in the center of the room at center stage is the Christ, watching and willing, but very clearly reminding that to follow him will cost you if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? So the message today is quite a simple one. Jesus doesn't care that it may cost you to do the thing you're supposed to do. To host, to be a friend, to be vulnerable in your own human condition, to be authentic. He just doesn't care. 
And so every time he asks you to do something that's painful or humbling or hurtful, and you're like, ah, you're actually just stepping off the stage and becoming part of the world, part of the audience that sits and judges those who listen to the voice of the one who made them. Jesus continually invites us to align ourselves with his sacrifice. This is why the cross is so important, because no one has ever paid a higher cost than him. And so aligning ourselves with Jesus aligns ourselves with healing and wholeness. And so therefore him, who is the essence of hope, and so therefore we become a part of that hope for this world. And so my question today for you is, who are you in this great drama that is your life? Are you the world, judging from the sidelines, deciding whether I'm authentic and this is even real, waiting for somebody to mess up, which will eventually happen in order to qualify you in your assessments of the situation at hand? Are you a host and you are just built to provide? You are built to show up in prayer. You are built to write checks and no one else can. You are built to lead projects. You are built to create space. And you even know deep down in your heart you're built to have your roof ripped off. You're fine with that. God has gifted me with roof repairing. That's how you know you're a host. Maybe you're a friend. Maybe you're sitting with someone right now that this room just got really awkward for you because you're like, I'm supposed to be that friend. I'm supposed to love people in spite of whether or not they need it or better yet, whether or not they think they need it. I'm supposed to put plans together and be innovative and creative. I'm supposed to get other friends together to help carry corners of mats so that we can get each other into the rooms with Jesus because I want to have that seat in the house. I'm going to look down on the face of my friend with tears rolling out of my eyes as Jesus says, get up and walk and live your life different than you have. Or maybe, for certain, you are the human condition. And your job is to stop pretending you have it all figured out, to stop relying on your religion as a crutch, to stop relying on your cerebral ability or your creative ability or your ability to keep away from people. Maybe you just need to be lowered into the room. <laughs> Let everybody go, oh, there's Danny. It's the great town center. And let people do something with your life that when they claim you are such a thing, you can say, yep, I was some of that. But I'm also walking. I'm also a miracle. And I know Jesus by name because I guarantee you that's who he had dinner with later that night. I know that. I know that that guy just didn't go home without a dinner invite with Jesus. I just, I just want to be in the community that I'm supposed to be. And it's going to require friends and hosts and people willing to be human conditions, and that's who we are supposed to be as a community. So my question for you today is, who will you decide to be? Who will you leave here as? Maybe a little bit of all of it. But what I want to do is I want to give you space to think about that, about that hope that you're supposed to be. So I'm going to have everybody close their eyes. We're just going to create space in the room right now. If you are someone who... Uh, doesn't believe in the God I'm talking about, you can just meditate. You can ask questions of the universe. You can ask questions of your conscience or your own spirit. All those things I believe God is happy to move in, <laughs> especially if you don't believe in him. He loves to show up in that space. 
But if you know God and you've been sitting on the sidelines for a long time, then this is going to be really intimate for you. Ask him who you're supposed to be. What are you holding back? Where are you supposed to be heading next? Who are you supposed to carry? What are you supposed to give? Where are you supposed to go? My Lord, my God, I thank you that uh, you can meet every person in this room on their own personal plane. That you know their stories, you know their secrets. And that in this place there would be more than just a, a simple curiosity, but there might be an actual awakening. God, I ask that we would sit in this place and just breathe in some hope from you and a picture of the hope we're supposed to be to other people. I thank you so much, God, for this space that you're creating. We just lift it up to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. I've been here the Savior. I fell far from A prodigal return. All my hope is in Jesus. I thank God my yesterday is gone. All my sins are forgiven. Yes, they are. 
of the ways that uh, God has given us to signify this joining of him and cost is in communion. So if you have a communion cup, I'd love for you to pull that out. And if you're not a Christ follower, don't worry about this. But for those who are aligning with this cost, there's two things in communion. First, there's the bread. And Jesus took bread. It's represented by this wafer. And he said, take and eat this in memory of my body, which will be broken. The cost that he will pay. So let's do that now. He then took a cup, and in that cup was wine, this is juice, and he said that this is to remind you of the blood that will be shed. Again, that cost, aligning with that cost. And so he says, take and drink this in memory of the blood that will be shed in the name of Jesus. And so I'm going to ask Dave to uh, close us with that chorus one more time. So if you'll stand right back up, we're just going to proclaim God and his hope. Amen. Let's just sing it out to him. Yeah, yeah, yeah.